0: Welcome to OA on Air. I'm Ann Murphy, partner at Seven Letter O'Neill and & Associates, and today we're talking about the local economy as we're now six months into 2021. What's on the horizon here in the greater Boston area? My guest is Bob Rhodes, Chief Credit Officer of Brookline Bank. Bob, welcome to OA on Air.
1: Well, thanks for having me. What would you like to talk about?
0: Well, Bob, I think it's important to just get a a little bit about your background and your vantage point relative to telling us what you're seeing going on out there.
1: Okay. Well, uh, you know, I'll skip all the gory details, but, you know, I'm the chief credit officer of not only Brookline Bank, but Brookline Bank Corps. And we own two banks a bank down in Rhode Island and Brookline Bank. And I've been doing this for over 40 years. I, I guess it, it just sort of happened. I didn't intend for it to be that long, but here I am. And, you know, we're an $8 billion institution. And we not only lend locally, but we have two or three national portfolios of loans. And those, those national portfolios are sort of interesting. One is laundromats, another one is tow trucks, and another one is exercise equipment. So some slightly different views. But <clears throat> when you think about it, the, the $8 billion that we have are really just, it's paper, right? They're contracts that people sign. And, you know, they do it, they get the money, and they invest in things that, that they think will be successful. They're buying a building, they're buying a business, they're buying more machinery. And um, to the extent that you know, it's in their self-interest to always pay us. They will, and when it's no longer in their self-interest, they unfortunately cannot. So, you know, the things that we saw going on at this vantage point, you know, maybe kind of maybe um, helpful to you and your and your listeners. Um, I'll tell you in a simple way: people stopped taking risks. They stopped borrowing money. <clears throat> they stopped buying things. And loan portfolios actually shrank, um, because that's what people do in times of trouble. They hoard money. Um, they all made their loan payments to the extent they could, and um, they took advantage, besides accumulating cash, they took advantage of the various forms of relief that were available to them um, as provided by the government and as provided by banks. And we can go into that a little bit later with some of your other questions. but. So the vantage point we have is, <clears throat> I think, unique, um, and we're now seeing the reverse happening. Everything that that stopped happening is going the other way now, which is good. So we'll talk about those in a few minutes.
0: Well, talk about a little bit about like what businesses were the most severely impacted the past year, and how are they bouncing back?
1: Well, so of the things that we have here in our company, <clears throat> I will I will preface this. And by saying, what I'm going to mention to you may sound like an odd collection of things, mm-hmm. but the the things that I don't mention did just fine. Thank you. You know, it's sort of, I, I'm not talking about the more normal things, exercise studios and gyms. Mm-hmm. Um, that portfolio that we have here is is across the United States. And we always had a checkerboard of things that were open and things that were ordered closed by a mayor, by a governor, and, um, you know, <laughs> It's a, it's a tough business. You, you cannot charge your customers, you can't charge their, their credit cards or draft their checking accounts if you are not open. So about 30% of gym members across the country canceled their memberships. Um, and that would have been really focused in the high price gyms and the medium price gyms. The uh, lower-priced gyms, take Planet Fitness, for example, where it costs $9 to belong per month. You know, people don't necessarily get out of that. Hotels, it's very obvious to say hotels did poorly. Um, The hotels we have, we don't have a lot of them, but they're about 50-50 between business and between those that would be pleasure. Resorts, vacation spots, you know, we have things on Block Island and Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard and Newport, Rhode Island, and <clears throat> various Rhode Island, other Rhode Island and Connecticut uh, shore, um, those had a bang up year last year. You know, everyone wanted to take a vacation in a small place. And, and the smaller the place, the better it did, you know, um, because that meant there wasn't an elevator, there wasn't a lobby, and that was great. The business hotels did poorly. Some of them just went to nothing during some months. <clears throat> Completely understandable. Restaurants, indoors, sit down, very bad. Um, anything with a takeout window did beautifully. Uh, so the fast food, the easy serve kinds of things. We have a, a portfolio of a uh, small portfolio of Dunkin Donuts. Um, and Dunkin Donuts had a little a little dip down um, at the beginning, <clears throat> but you know, people are addicted to coffee. And um, most of them have drive-up windows, and they, they just went completely out the window, which was great. Entertainment venues, of course, poorly uh, performing, um, and uh, ordered closed, really. It was not even legal for them to open up. <clears throat> laundromats, you'd think a necessity wouldn't have any issues. But to the extent that laundromats, a lot of the laundromats are in New York City and you know, dense areas And if it was in a place where people left their apartments and went out to the suburbs and the exurbs to work from home, um, they didn't need to be in the cities to do uh, do their laundry, as odd as that may sound. Tow trucks. Now, here's one. So we have a portfolio of uh, loans to tow truck operators. Great great business, great collateral. Mm -hmm. Um, But the one thing we didn't think about, working from home means you're not driving around, means you're not having an accident or breaking down. So business uh, sort of went to a a, a slow slow pace there. Offices, so far the offices have done okay that we have. But if an office was a hotel where people went in every day and paid to go in, it would have been, they just would have fallen off the face of the earth. The offices were um, pretty much deserted and all of the ancillary businesses around them, around the base of the building, on the street, the restaurants, the dry cleaners, the you name it, um, not doing well. Anything um, um, travel-oriented, of which we have very little, but business-related travel, convention-related, didn't do well. So those were the things that in in this bank that we are familiar with, Mm -hmm. stood out during the pandemic as really having to get creative and work very hard to be successful.
0: Well, you're talking about getting creative and having the bank, you know, helping their customers kind of through this time. So um, how did Brookline Bank participate in that and, and help, help their customers?
1: Yeah, two, two or three things we did. You know, the first one <clears throat> was granting deferments of required payments to customers, and that can take a couple of forms. The most common one is stop paying us principal and only make an interest payment on your loan interest only, we would call that. Um, The second one is a little more uh, helpful to people, but it was in the minority, just stop your payments altogether. So Brookline Bank was not alone in doing this. This was really ultimately done by almost all banks across the country, um, providing 90-day moratoriums of required payments in those ways that I just mentioned. Now, what was what was kind of interesting to me, the first place I ever saw this in my career, I'll have to um, uh, tell you that was in the blizzard of 78. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, I was in my 20s, and I was working at Shamit Bank of Boston, and the blizzard of uh, 78 hit. And when we finally were able to go back to work, any customer that said, I'm sorry, I've been very hurt here, I need a a moratorium on my payments to get through this this mess even though it was short-lived compared to the pandemic um, we were happy to do that first place I saw that but hurricanes floods and other disasters this is this is always done to help people and the national portfolios that we have that I mentioned to you um, you know wherever there's a hurricane we seem to have a laundromat in that town and <laughs> you know we're happy to help people but upwards of 20% of our customers, of the $8 billion um, received some form of payment deferral. Those have fallen down to below 1% right now. You know, those that remain um, are in, um, sort of in in places that are still struggling with the ability to be open or closed, et cetera. The second thing was um, a government program. You know, banks are used by the federal government to dispense aid and help to people in difficult times. And the uh, very popular Paycheck Protection Program, you may have heard people mention the PPP loans. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it's free money. Um, You know, there are requirements that I think the program is now stopped. You know, all the money's been lent. But, um, you know, certain business expenses were eligible for um, assistance of the PPP program. And we made over $600 million in PPP loans to our customers. Um, And these loans are the great part, the thing people love the most about these are they're forgiven in the end. So it is almost like a capital injection from the United States government um, to to your customers. And that's why it was so popular um, and and necessary. It really helped people uh, get over the hump. There were other programs, you know, one one we've done a couple of, or the, the Main Street Loan Program. Um, that actually is a loan that has to be paid back, but, it, you know, meant to bridge people over the difficult time. But, you know, it, we like to help our customers. We want them to be successful. We don't want them to fail. And we were happy to do these things during this time frame.
0: Well, looking at like the broader picture of like what the current status of your local economy is, is it a positive outlook right now? Is it holding steady? Or how would you look at it?
1: Um, and it's so positive that it's shocking. Um, you know. And, and if you would ask me yesterday, I, I would have been less positive. But let me give you some examples. So in the last three months, um, we have had two economists speak with us here at the bank about what's going on, and these are these are people that you see on the evening news, uh, you know, on the stations that you watch, um, you know, very experienced people. One of them was in last week, <clears throat> and um, I have never heard economists speak in such bullion terms about the recovery. Uh, things like uh, these are the Roaring Twenties all over again, or. Uh, this is a recovery like you have never seen before, and it is going to go on for two years. Um, you know, they talk about things like the GD, GDP growth of 5 or 6% two years in a row, back to back. And when they look back in history, you know, they're hard pressed to find those kinds of expansions going on. Uh, another view that I have is, you know, vaccination rates are the doorway to recovery. If, if you have a state, and I'm so happy to live in Massachusetts that has the second highest vaccination rate in the nation, um, and you look around us, you know, we, I mentioned we have a bank in Rhode Island, they're up there quite high in vaccination rates. But the moment you hit those magic numbers, people have their confidence back to move about the economy and do the things they have been huddling in their homes not doing. So that is, that is like, a prerequisite to having a nice recovery. Um, I will also say if you observe yourself, your family, your friends, your business colleagues, what have they been doing the last three weeks that's different from what they did the previous 14 months? And so whatever that group of people is doing, everyone else in the Commonwealth is doing that. Um, you know, we have reports of hotel booking rates exceeding forecasts. So these people, you know, reforecast. Uh, uh, call it a and call it a pandemic forecast. You know, mm-hmm. it's a forecast at a much lower level, but you know, we have people telling us that April they beat all their expectations and forecasts. We've had some people say our occupancy rates have hit the low 40s at this point, and you know, they're just climbing daily. Um, we have uh, observed lines and crowding. Uh, my offices in the Back Bay. Um, The lunch spots that are open, some are closed, but the ones that are open are crowded as if it was pre-pandemic. Auto sales are soaring. Used car prices are are soaring. Loan demand is picking up rather nicely. And that loan demand is, you know, it's reflecting what I said before. People investing in their future, people taking a risk um, to buy a building, to make an investment in a piece of machinery, et cetera. I was talking with some people in the in the theater business here in Boston, and subscription renewals. Um, you know, the plays were canceled last year, but most houses are planning to open in September. And the report I have from the folks I know at one of the major theaters is that the subscription renewal rates are coming in, um, you know, very nicely. They're surprised by that. Colleges are going to be open for real teaching. More on that point later, I think, is one of your questions. Apartment rents, in some cases, in some places, are being, are being raised. We all thought people were never going to come back to the city. Guess what? They're coming back, and, um, and people who own apartment buildings are raising rates. Um, yesterday, uh, we have a committee here in the bank that, that we set up during the pandemic, early in the pandemic, of board members and a few members of executive management um, to talk about what you know, a very objective uh, and unbiased set of guidance from, from these outside directors. And they're in they're in the following industries: the restaurant, food industry, education at the college level, commercial and military aviation, um, and real estate in all forms, commercial, industrial, office, and residential real estate. And for the first time, we've met, I think, four times in 14 months. We met yesterday. For the first time, they have, they're full of optimism and they've seen a distinct change in each of their businesses, even though they're very different kinds of businesses. The only negatives that they spoke of were um, the rehiring of people is difficult in the food service industry. They're, they're, They've lost track of the people who used to work for them. And they're having to provide an increase in wages uh, and to raise their prices to offset that. Not a lot, but just enough. Um, and we had one report of shortage of materials uh, to meet orders. And it wasn't chips that people have taught, computer chips that we've heard in the news. It was simply stainless steel, raw stainless steel from which to you know make precision parts. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I am very optimistic. I think this is a very unique moment in time where the inflection point was maybe two or three weeks ago, and, it's almost feels, and it almost feels violent in the, in the rapid change that's going on. Um, and one thing I've learned in my career is that people's behavior, economic activity, living arrangements, cities, suburbs, whatever they may be, they're all very highly evolved over, you know, civilization, and things usually return. They always return uh, very close to what they were before, whatever the disaster was, whether it was a war, a recession, or, or a depression. And yes, a public health crisis. So I think we're well launched on our path to, um, you know, what it used to be like.
0: Well. It- couple of things to uh, talk about, specifically about returning to life as normal, as we say, and uh, that's returning to the office from working at home. And there's many people, many people have been working at home like I have and in, uh, in the professional services realm, but I know that you folks in the banking world have been working at the big. How How is that whole issue affecting the commercial real estate rents and prices? What do you think about that?
1: Well, So I I will tell you that I worked at home for 14 months. This is my fourth week of coming into my office. And just to feel good about today and talking to you, even though this is a podcast, I put on a jacket and a tie. And it's really great to do that and go into your office and pretend like you're an adult with a real job, you know. But I, I will tell you that I think office is a sleeper. It's slow to reveal itself. And I'll tell you why. The first thing is, everyone says, we're going to begin to sort this out starting in September, August or September. Uh, I hear that over and over again. And um, the second thing is that office leases are very long-term in nature. It's not like an apartment, which is a year-to-year lease. But, um, you know giving up space doesn't necessarily mean you get out of the requirement to make the lease payment. Um, And the the bigger the company, you know, the longer the the more space that's taken, the bigger the building, usually the longer the term of the lease. So even if people plan to do things, shrink their space requirements, I think that um, uh, they're not going to get out of it as easily. I will also tell you that the trend was already there Um, We've been working at home for some time in various ways, but it's become more normal to do this. We have now transcended health issues, and it's now becoming a matter of personal convenience. And to some extent, workers are going to expect the flexibility when they start to come back full time. Um, And if you don't give it to them, if you don't give the option to them, they'll quit and go to work for someone else who will. So I've surveyed my own staff. And so when you talk to them and say, well, what do you plan to do? You know, and I I sort of know what they plan to do, but they all say, oh, we'd like to work two or three days in the office and then have two or three days at home. That seems to be a standard answer, no matter who you are. And that's legitimate. I was thinking that way myself for a while. But when you ask them, would you be willing to give up your office to have that flexibility of two to three days? Because if everybody does that, we're going to have some extra space, and maybe some of you can be hotel people. You know, you can hotel it in a in a group space or move around when you come in. And they all go, no, we don't want to do that. You know, we don't want to give up our offices. We need that. So, I think that, you know, one day in and four day, I'm sorry, one day out and four days in, in a mix and match kind of thing that may come more down to, oh, the plumber's coming to the house today. So rather than in the old days, I'd race home at two o'clock when he was going to be there at three and spend the rest of the day at home. Uh, They just would choose to work at home that day and, you know, Zoom and call and do their computer thing right up to the moment the plumber's there and then just go back to it when he's gone. And uh, you could think of a thousand examples, working parents have all kinds of reasons to uh, make their lives better through working at home. So... But, you know, the answer that maybe you're asking, I've heard some some people say there could be a, a 20% decline in demand for space in central business districts of cities. So I'm here, I would be talking about the financial district. Right. Um, and I've heard other people say 10%. Um, you know, the guy we were talking to yesterday, I'm sorry, last week, the, um, the, uh, the national economist said, look, most vacancy, vacancy rates in office nationally is about 18%. So if we go to 20%, what difference does it make? It's not much more that that's the truth. He also says, even if you're in your office five days a week, that doesn't mean that you're actually there five days a week, because based on travel and meetings and going out here and there, you're usually only there 70% of the time, even if you think you're working five days a week. So this 20% decline in demand may not be such a damaging thing.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I I do think that to repeat myself a little bit it's going to take some time for it to sort out but um, you know what what I think is becoming obvious is that and I'm quoting this economist this is a this is a health crisis not a commercial real estate crisis.
0: <laughs> right. Well we also talked a little bit about Those other little businesses that were affected because they, the little businesses, the sub shop, the sandwich shop, the dry cleaner, and this one and that one, because they, they are based on foot traffic. And if people aren't back in the offices, uh, you know, they, they, they can't survive. So I'm thinking, do you think that uh, those businesses will pop back up again? Or what, what, what do they need to do to see, you know, them return?
1: They need people. They, They just need people. You know, chatting with, um, you know, restaurant people here, I should have mentioned this before, but while the people are coming back for lunch, the part of the business that's missing because the offices are still largely empty is the catering business at lunchtime. So it would be the business that sends out for 25 sandwiches for a lunch meeting. It's not happening. Um, So it it is, this is an unfortunate casualty that just needs people to come back. Um, for it to perform at the level it was performing before this happened. By the way, I, I, back to the value, you, your first question was commercial real estate office values, you know, how are they affected? Yeah. I, with certainty, I can tell you that they're not going to go up. Um, that's for sure. And, and so the demand to buy office buildings, build office buildings is just sort of, is dead for a while. And you know, demand for that is not going to come back. Values aren't going to aren't. I'm not saying they're going to fall, but I'm saying they may stagnate for some time um, until we sort out the long-term need.
0: Uh, we did touch a little bit upon the um, the industry. I call it an industry of higher education because of the thousands of students who come back. Every year to the Boston area. I think I saw a a statistic once like 300,000 students pour in. Of course, their parents come too, and you know, friends and that to like see them off. Uh, How important is that sector to the local economy?
1: I'm I'm glad you asked. It's huge. Um, It's a big deal. And from the beginning, you know, in Massachusetts, from colonial times, education was a big deal. Um, And you know, it's also a big deal in Rhode Island, right? Providence is filled with schools Um, but um, you know it is a it is a leading industry and it also is sort of the headwaters from which technology um medicine defense venture capital all those things go over to kendall square and look around and see what you see you know it's just amazing and that wouldn't be there if the schools that are over there weren't there but um You know we pay a lot of attention to this. <clears throat> you know we're not unusual here, but if I look at the zip codes where students live, whatever it may be, Cambridge, Somerville, um, Austin, Brighton, you name it, right? Um, um, the um, we have we have 500 million dollars in loans in in those zip codes and there's nothing unusual about that. their apartment buildings, their offices, their... are their stores, um, you name it. But, you know, when the kids come back, all of those businesses uh, in those zip codes get that extra injection of energy from, you mentioned the kids, their parents, their friends, going out to dinner, shopping over at Copley Place when they come to visit Junior, you know. And um, so... I have heard from very uh, reputable, reliable sources that all the kids are coming back um, you know, full time, no hybrid, in class, real teachers standing in front of them. They're going to come back. Um, and if they're not vaccinated, they're going to have vaccination booths set up to vaccinate the kids, and they'll isolate them for two weeks somehow. Yep. The international students are the big question. Um, so, international is 5% of total students in the United States, but in Boston, it's 15% of, of the local student base. And uh, we're, we're fortunate, you know, Northeastern is second in the nation of the number of foreign students. 16,000 uh, kids come to Northeastern from other countries. And Boston University is number 10 in the nation they're taking in 11,000 students from around the world. And, you know, that doesn't include everyone in between. But um, so, and China, by the way, provides 35% um, of of the international students in the whole country. So, you know, their return is important because it's like the icing on the cake, you know, or it puts the shoes on the baby, um, you know, taking up, you know, Things that aren't taken up by domestic people, right? right. Space in classrooms, apartments off campus, you name it. And so their return is based on vaccination rates in their countries. It's based on opening borders between countries, travel restrictions. And we're you know we're reading about the Biden administration planning to relax some of those travel restic- restrictions in the very near future. But um, not that not that. The economy will be irreparably harmed if the international kids don't come back. It, but it still and just rem- it remains a question as to their status. But you got it right; it's a big deal.
0: Well, another big deal that everybody talks about. I know it's like you know when I go out to meet friends for a drink cocktail, you know, uh, we gathering together again. Everybody's talking about real estate, right? In the housing, residential real estate, in the housing boom. It's like, what do you see out there? Can this last? Can it be, you know, can it continue? To increase the increase, the the prices increase, or what? I don't know. I don't know how that how you look at that. The timing is now. That's what it is. I think.
1: Yeah, I I wish I knew. Um, <clears throat> you know, some some people say the boom has already happened. The boom isn't in the future. The boom is being lived right now, <clears throat> and. Um, I've been forecasting the demise of the housing boom for a dozen years, easy. Um, And regarding apartments, I've been forecasting that demise just as long and I'm always wrong. Um, And so, you know, it's hard to say, I wish I knew, Uh, but I think if something is well located, attractive, appropriate to its location, Mm -hmm. um, it will always do well. I think Um, changing just a few degrees in another direction, you know, when we think of Boston. And so I'm a native, you know, not to the city, but to the suburbs. I was born here and educated here and spent my whole career here. So if you do that, you have opinions of places that, that you've developed over your lifetime. And so the first good example of this would be South Boston, right? You'd say South Boston, what is going on over there? Why do all these young people want to live over there? This is just, this is, doesn't make any sense. So you can harbor your long prejudice or misunderstanding of something, or you can get in the car and go over there and look around and try to understand what, what is attractive about that place is is what you hear, what your friends are telling you, really true? Do people really want to live there in these quantities and pay these prices uh, for refurbished, you know, two and three-decker homes? And and you look around, you visit some of them, and they're attractive, and you see you you know you see it with your own eyes, and you begin to understand it that you know um, this is real. Um, these places are for real. It's not a flash in the pan. Seaport suffered from that same sort of thing. You know, the historical views of that might be industrial wasteland and cheap parking lots. You know, that's what it was for a good part of my career. And then you go over there today, and you've got to spend some time there and you know, get over those kinds of views of new housing locations, recycled space. Um, I've been driving around Quincy, looking at apartment buildings there. You know, and it is just amazing when you think about the the housing growth that has taken place and it all gets absorbed. Um, So it's a pretty healthy problem. It's kind of a classy problem to have. Demand of your housing is always exceeding supply and doing very well. Um, And I wish I could help you more. Is it going to end or is it going to continue? I don't know.
0: Well, I think if we all had a crystal ball, then we would maybe not be in our positions right now because we would be very wealthy people and we could do whatever we wanted with our money, right? So
1: You're right about that.
0: (laughs) Well, Bob, I thank you for joining us. It's been a fascinating conversation about the economy and it's just great to talk to you and see you next time on OA on Air.
1: Yes, you will.